This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hello, I'm Lale Arakogli, and this is Women Who Travel, a podcast for anyone who's curious about the world. The Amazon lives in our imaginations. It lives in literature and throughout swathes of travel writing. Accounts of hiking through thick jungle and trips on waterways from Manaus, the gateway to the forest. But today, we're talking to someone who really knows what it's like to live on the edge of the Brazilian rainforest. Journalist Eliane Brum, who has built a house of recycled wood in a town called Altamira, which lies on the northern fringes of the Amazon. It's in the Amazon forest. It's the center of deforestation in the Amazon, also the center of the criminal fires, and also the center of the resistance. The rainforest is known for its incredible jaw-dropping biodiversity. It's home to innumerable types of animals and plants. But it's also central to the story of climate change, suffering from severe deforestation. Altamira, in particular, is prey to aggressive logging, gold mining, and recently a huge new hydroelectric dam. The land is being flooded, dug up, cut down, and the local people's livelihood is being threatened. Eliani has been documenting this for decades, and much of that work appears in her new book, Banzaero Okoto or The Amazon is the Centre of the World, out on March 7th. It's why we're also talking to Diane Witte, who's based in Madison, Wisconsin, and lived in Brazil before translating Eliani's book. I asked Diane how you'd explain the book to anyone unfamiliar with Brazil. If you would like to take a journey into the Amazon, a world that... um, you know hardly anything about. And at the same time, take that trip as a transformational experience of a person who goes from a city dweller to someone who feels herself intermixed with a forest. You will come out with a new understanding of our relationship with the world, where we are, at this moment of the world and how the Amazon is central to our ability to continue to exist on this planet 
as we have, as we would like our future generations to live on this planet. Diane and Eliani have never met in person, but working together to bring the stories within this book to an English-speaking audience has really bonded them. I'm trying to talk in English, and my book was translated into English. And we need to understand that just here in Brazil, we have more than 300 indigenous people and more than 200 languages. Few people get to experience the Amazon during their lifetime. I've certainly yet to make it there. Eliani says even Brazilian readers don't know that much about her area. So I wanted to know what it sounds like, what it feels like to be there. The forest is unbelievable, alive. There are creatures all the time. There are sounds all the time. For me, the most beautiful sound in the forest is the sound of a monkey that we call guaribas. They call some moments of the day. The first time I listened many, many, many years ago, I thought it was, <laughs> I was sleeping in a hammock in the middle of the forest because when we travel in the forest, we stop it in the end of the day because we travel by boat and we cannot travel during the night because it's too dangerous because there are many stones in the river. And then we stop at around five o'clock. We make our hammocks in the middle of the forest and we begin and we make a fire to do our food. And then we sleep in the forest. And the first time I, I listened to these guaribas, these monkeys, I was still sleeping around 4 a.m. in the morning. And I couldn't understand what was this, that song. And it was the monkeys. And it's so, so beautiful, Ali. So beautiful. And there are different sounds. I live in the forest, not the primary forest. It was a deforested area. We are in the forest, in the river, and there are different and amazing sounds all the time. I don't need clock alarm because I know by the sounds what is happening, what time it is, and it's, I'm so alive. moved from Sao Paulo in 2017. When was the moment when you knew you had fallen in love with living in the forest? I went to the forest for the first time in 1998. And I went to a Transamazonic, that it's a, a big road that was built over with a lot of deaths of indigenous people. It's a road made by the military dictatorship in Brazil. And I went there to listen to the people that live it. It was begin my love because I listen different. It was the same Portuguese language, but it wasn't the same. It was other, other kind of, of language, other kind of rhythm, other kind of words. It's an entire other world. And I was totally impassioned uh, about this.
That was the indigenous singer from Brazil, Joana Ticuna. Eliane is a documentary filmmaker, a novelist, non-fiction writer, and a journalist who's written for publications like Granta, The Guardian, El País, and The New York Times. She spent years covering social issues in Brazilian cities, but at some point, her interest in the Amazon started to take over. We were the first journalists to reach a part of the fort called Middle Earth. We went there because the people were threatened, the forest were being burned with the house of the traditional people for destructors of the forests. And they, they lived out of the state. The official Brazil didn't know about them. They didn't exist. They didn't vote. They didn't have uh, documents. They didn't have any official existence. We needed five days to reach them by boat from here, from Altamira. It was a very difficult trip, as usually. We have to cross, to carry the boats across the stones. Uh, many things happen. And when I, we enter in this river, dozens, maybe, maybe thousands of yellow butterflies appeared suddenly. It's like uh, we are crossing worlds. And immediately a couple of uh, ariranhas, I don't know the name the, of this animal in, in English, jumped in front of us. It's something so, so, so amazing that, again, I feel myself so alive. I was uh, one night in a river because we have showers in the rivers when they are in the forest, of course. There is a full moon and the Anomami were doing a party because they have hunted a big animal and because we are white people, are foreigners, we couldn't participate of the party, but I was inside this river in the middle of the forest, listening of dozens of people dancing. It's an amazing, amazing sound. That animal, it turns out, was a giant otter. Magical encounters with nature draw people to the Amazon every year. But is there justification for tourists to just show up and intrude? Can tourism help locals? And is there a way to visit one of the planet's most important ecosystems in a thoughtful and conscious way? Tourists do visit the Amazon and they take Amazon river cruises and they take tours within that habitat. Is it possible to be a responsible visitor to the Amazon? I can say that the most of tourism is irresponsible and it's fake. But there are some people that are connected with the local communities and work with the local communities uh, with respect. You need to respect the people. The people are not there for you make pictures or just... Uh, enter in their house. 
It was after taking a Greenpeace tour to Antarctica that Eliani experienced a revelation about one's impact when visiting an endangered place. I learned this very, very clear when I, I went to Antarctica in a Greenpeace ship with scientists that were researching the impact of the climate crisis in the population of penguins and in the entire continent. And it was very difficult for me to do this question. Can I, I go? Because to put your feet in the Antarctica is very delicate. It's a decision very difficult and should be. And should I go? And why I'm going? And I wrote much more because I need to justify my presence. Antarctica is a really interesting comparison to make. And I think the survival or protection of Antarctica and the traces that we leave behind on it, the global impact that has is comparable to the Amazon. After the break, Condé Nast Traveler's senior editor, Megan Spirell, reflects on her own trip to Antarctica. If you're enjoying this episode of Women Who Travel, one of the best ways you can support the podcast is by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from you. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) Have you ever owned something that inspired you to level up? For me, it's my hiking boots, which have gotten me over some pretty tough terrain. And I'm not talking about my morning commute on the New York City subway. They've pushed me to go to far off places like trekking in the remote mountains in Patagonia, wildlife spotting amid the thick rainforest of the Amazon, and climbing through canyons in the Utah desert. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. There's an available panorama glass roof, 33-inch all-terrain tires, and multi-terrain select driving modes. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior means that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. 
Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. I'm Megan Sprell. I'm a senior editor at Coinos Traveler and a very avid podcast listener and caller in. Um, last winter, I had the immense privilege of going to Antarctica on an expedition ship. There is nothing like when you finally see that white, looming, dramatic continent in the distance. With humpback whales breaching and the hills are covered with penguins. It was incredible. And I think one of the things that struck me the most was the rules about how you visit. When we were sailing down, we attended a lecture where we learned about all the rules for visiting. So how far do you need to stay from wildlife? What are you allowed to bring on shore? What do you have to leave behind? We had all of our like clothing and gear, even the beanies you're going to wear or the Velcro section of your gloves was inspected and vacuumed out to make sure that you weren't bringing seeds from where you'd been and maybe going to accidentally deposit that when you landed on Antarctica. Every day when we would land in places where there we would go for hikes and there were penguin colonies, when we would come back on the ship, we would you know stand against the wall and actually have your boots washed down with a high-powered hose to make sure that then you wouldn't bring anything from that place to where we went the next day. So it was just this level of care that I'd never seen with anywhere I'd visited. And it's part of the Antarctic Treaty that was signed in, I think, 1959, where a bunch of countries agreed, like, here's how we're going to take care of this place that is everyone's and no one's. You can't help but wonder what would it look like to apply this to other destinations? What would it look like if we were so thoughtful with other natural environments we enter. At the same time, I couldn't overlook the fact that what I I thought was most amazing about Antarctica was the complete absence of humans. And I also was aware that I was a person there. You know, it's like you look out and you're like, God, I love how there's no people. And like, you're standing in a group of tourists who are now walking onto the land. And that was kind of hard to reckon with. And I, I think the environmental protections made me feel better about it. But I felt this guilt, like, how can it stay like this? Even with all of this, all these protections, how can this place continue to feel like humans haven't touched it when they are coming more and more every single year, just like me wanting to see it? I know there are limits and restrictions on how many ships can be there and how many people can dock at a landing per day. But what will it look like if that gets pushed to the max? I've also been to the Amazon, which honestly, I still call the best place I've ever been. I went through Iquitos in Peru and I just, that was another place that was so wild and alive and incredible. The Amazon feels so fragile in so many ways, in very different ways from Antarctica. And I wonder how you protect a place like that, where there is so much biodiversity, there are so many important natural resources. The Amazon serves so many functions for every single person on this planet. And yet protecting it, you know, it's not somewhere like Antarctica where there are no humans. Millions of people live inside this rainforest. There is a lot of conflict because of, 
humans interacting with the natural environment. I wonder how you protect a place when there are humans who have basic needs who live there as well. I think a lot of times we think about tourism as having the potential to be this force that stops other interests from taking priority. So what I mean by that is in the Amazon, you know, there's a hope that, okay, if there is enough money to be made off tourism by me visiting this area, maybe the government will actually crack down on illegal logging, for example, because they know that the value of tourism is greater than either what can be made from logging or the kickbacks from illegal loggers. But I guess as tourists, you always wonder, like, does that math work? It's kind of like Antarctica. It's, you know, by us going, are we helping more people learn how to travel responsibly or are we just putting a strain on a delicate environment? I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Eliani, you write in your book... Earth will continue to exist despite the destruction of the forest and the impacts of climate collapse. But our life on it will be much less interesting. I've been thinking about that line a lot. Could you expand on that and describe to listeners what the Amazon means to our planet? It is, as your book says, the centre of the world. <laughs> the forest is the big regulator of the climate. Imagine that one big tree in the Amazon, just one big tree, tree in the Amazon, put 1,000 liters of water in the atmosphere every day. And this is one of the wonderful processes of the forest. And... At this moment, Lali, the forest is around 17% of the forest, the Amazon forests are deforested. And the scientists affirm that between 20% and 25% of destruction, the forest reaches the point of no return. And if this happens, we won't be able, or at least will be very, very, very difficult to control the overheating, the global overheating. If Bolsonaro, Jair Bolsonaro, as a president of Brazil, and Jair Bolsonaro is a far-right man, a fascist, and he led the destruction of the forest. And then in the August 
last August for the first time in my life because as journalists, when there, there were fires, criminal fires in the forest, I needed to go to the fires in order to cover the fires as journalists. In the last August, I watched, I testified for the first time the, the forest uh, burning. Oh, it's my cat. I, I should I was like, put what? Her. I was like, what amazing <laughs> Amazon animal is that? And then I was like, I think that's a it's cat. It's a cat. <laughs> <laughs> I should stop and put him. I expelled him already, but then he can't. I have four cats and four dogs. And they always find a way to come here. I'm, I've closed all the doors, but I, what do I you welcome want I the do? cat. In August 2022, unprecedented fires in the Brazilian rainforest generated global headlines. They were allegedly started by loggers emboldened by then-president Jair Bolsonaro on the eve of the election. Diane, you lived in Brazil for a long time, but you have not visited the Amazon, like you said. What was your path to learning what an important story it was to tell and to work on? Eliane is addressing an audience in Brazil that many of whom, many people are not familiar with the Amazon there either. So, for example, she talks about the Beradeiros in many moments in the book. The Beradeiros are a group of forest people, traditional forest peoples that are neither indigenous nor Quilombolas, Quilombolas being the descendants of enslaved Africans. But they're a very specific group. And she talks about the fact that it's hard to explain to Brazilians that beradeiros are not simply people who live on the edge of the river, which is the literal translation of the term, but are people who immigrated from other areas of Brazil into the Amazon and developed their own kind of style of life. I wanted to say something else about translating Eliani, which is really important, not specific to the Amazon, but to Eliani, which is that she has an incredibly unique voice. It is a very creative and poetic voice. And that's one of the things I love about translating her. If I may give a small example here, she talks a lot about Bellamonchi, which is a hydro power plant. It was a dam that was built and flooded a major area, drove a lot of people out of the area, destroyed their ways of life. The name of it is Belomonchi, which means beautiful mountain. But the people have called it Belomonstru as well, which means beautiful monster. That, in translation, that is actually works well because Monstru, monster, Monchi Mountain, we have the alliteration that works well. And at one point, she refers to Bella Monchi as a monstruario geohoris. So she takes the word monstruario. Monstruario means a showcase, a display case of horrors. She adds one letter, N, and evokes the word monster in the middle of the word monstruario. She creates a new word, a neologism in Portuguese that the Brazilian reader is going to understand immediately. But how do you capture that in English? And that's the kind of translation challenge I ran into with her all the time, and which is delightful to a translator. Eliani's book charts both the destruction and the local resistance 
and many of the radical leaders of that resistance are Indigenous women. Yet despite all the brutality that she's witnessing towards the land and its people, there's also peace and adventure there, and so many transformative experiences to be had in the Amazon. The last September, I went to a ayahuasca conference in an indigenous territory, in the territory of the Ashanincas, a very interesting indigenous people. And there are many, many of indigenous people. There are the different names. There are the Jaguar people. Each people has your, I don't know how it we can say in English, maybe avatar, your animal that uh, symbolizes each people. And then in the night, it happened the ritual. It was in the black, it was dark, it was in the middle of the forest, there were stars and moon, we were in the silence, we had ayahuasca, little, but we had ayahuasca, and then each people began to incorporate their animal. Then the jaguar people moved as jaguar and sing as a jaguar. The frog people as frogs. And the snake people as a snake. And it was a symphony. I never seen something so beautiful in my life. Next week, Francis Rings, an indigenous dancer and choreographer who makes work from the stories told to her by elders in Aboriginal communities throughout Australia. Thank you for listening. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and you can find me, as always, on Instagram at Lale Hannah, and follow along with Women Who Travel on Instagram at Women Who Travel. You can also join the conversation in our Facebook group. Alison Leighton Brown is our composer. Jennifer Nelson is our engineer. Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. 
because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.